0: I'm just going to begin this morning with our talk on repentance and faith, um, the first key. And I'm going to read from the, uh, <clears throat> the, uh, uh, the testimony that begin at the beginning of the, uh, uh, the companion guidebook um, for this talk. And it's really, it's not very long, and it kind of gives a good, good overview of, of, what, of what we're encountering. <clears throat> this is from Betty in Pennsylvania. <clears throat> Driving home from the final day of the Unbound Freedom in Christ conference, I noticed an amazing an unprecedented thing. I could look at the Christmas lights festooning our downtown without that all too familiar weight of dread and resentment building the pit of my stomach. The truth is, it had been years since I looked at the approaching holidays with any feeling remotely resembling joy or anticipation. Was I just a lousy Christian? Or was it the mere sinister truth my mother in law was coming to town? It never failed. Each holiday season, my mother-in-law descended upon our family with her dark entourage of accusation, anger, and vitriol, and her dark entourage would then call forth from me a host of other party crashers, resentment, guilt, and fear. When I looked at those cheerful Christmas lights, I waited for the familiar sensations of nausea, dread, and anger to rise like bile in my throat, but those sensations were gone, simply gone. I tried to prod them a little by remembering the last time my mother-in-law visited and had stormed out of the house. The memories were vague and the anger gone. Praise God, I'd been released. This year would be different. At the conference, I had come forward for prayer multiple times and had miraculously forgiven my mother-in-law. I had decided that I wanted Jesus more than I wanted my old grudges That day I renounced my old enemies, resentment, anger, worry, and dread. Our Lord in his mercy replaced this garbage with something precious, understanding. Now I knew that my mother-in-law, apart from the grace of God, would never change. She will always look for rejection and lash out. My husband and I must change how we interact with her. The last two days I've had a picture of Jesus taking the place of my Old protective shield of anger and resentment And standing between my husband's mother and me I've been released from the weight of remembering past wrongs In the name of Jesus And with the help of some powerful intercession I renounce the spirits that would rob me Of the joy of Christmas Hallelujah, hallelujah Betty in Pennsylvania You know That beautifully kind of encapsulates what, why you've come and why you've you said yes to the Holy Spirit's prompting in your heart um, to come because we're all looking for freedom. We're all looking for breaking away from these things that cloud our minds <clears throat> and our relationships and our life. And it is the, the, this recognition of the faith and repentance that we begin with Jesus' first words. You know, after Jesus was baptized, he went in the desert, but then he began to preach. And the gospel of Mark records Jesus first words Mark chapter 1 verses 14 and 15. And he says the kingdom of God is at hand. That was his first words. The kingdom of God is at hand. You know that's what we talked about yesterday the, the uh, deliverance being going from one kingdom the kingdom of the enemy to the new kingdom to the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Christ. He then said this, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and believe. And there's something profound that he did there that we'll be kind of talking about. Many of us, when we hear that word repentance, it kind of sticks in our craw. It kind of twists us up going, oh, yuck, repentance. What does that mean? You know, we might get a little burden and we kind of feel, oh, the dread of thinking, oh, yeah, I've tried that before. And it never quite works. You know, um, we may see it as just that tough work that we have to do to get back at our sins and, and maybe just try harder. We may see, remember failure and regret in our life every time we've tried to repent. Um, there is fear and dread looking ahead, expecting failure, willpower, or resolution. You know, So we think of repentance as just like all this stuff kind of clouds it. Um, you know, the dictionary is kind of lacking because it says repentance is simply recognizing wrongs and being sorrowful. You know, That's okay. That's kind of there. Um, But the Greek word for repentance is a little different. It's called metanoia. And a great definition I I read for metanoia is a change, and this is what uh, Neil referred to, a change of mind that leads to a change of behavior or action. So a change of mind that leads to a change in action or change in behavior. Metanoia, conversion. You know, that's what it is. Before Jesus, before Jesus came, this whole idea of, of conversion or metanoia, repentance, meant to turn back to the law, turn back to the law. You know. Um, but after Jesus takes a radical change, because what Jesus said in, today's, in that gospel, you know, he says, repent and believe. He ties these two together in one action. Repent and believe. So this is something very new. Repent was always just go back. But now it's go back and go another direction, or turn and go another direction. So Jesus ties these two together in one act of conversion. And he calls, says, repent and believe the gospel, the good news. And so it's moving us to that new kingdom. The reality of it being, if you think of it simply, Repent means to turn around, to turn so our mind so I have a new, a new direction, so to say, a new uh, action, because my mind changes. But if you turn, if you think of this, you're, you're turning from something, and you turn, and you turn to someone. That's what repent and believe means. You turn from something that's in our life, or some person in our life, and you turn to someone, to Jesus. Repent and believe. And that, I think, is the, the thing we have to kind of hold in our minds. Um, Jesus said, repent, as, or St. Paul says in the Acts of the Apostles, or St. Uh, the Acts of Apostles tells us, remember I say, Luke, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, faith is often a struggle. It's a struggle to grow in. It's a struggle to to, to live in sometimes. Um, Neil in the in, in the book, in his book Unbound, I think on page sixty one, sixty two, kinda has a, a pretty powerful um little exposition of, of faith, and especially our Christian faith. You know, and just kind of pops in my mind, you know, you may have read the Unbound book and you may have thought, Is this guy Catholic? Okay. Did you hear the talk today? We Catholics, we know how to adore, we know how to kneel down. But we don't know how to stand. You know, that was what he said. So I, I like that talk because he kind of he affirmed he's talking to a Catholic audience and he claims himself as Catholic. Okay, so he is. He lives about a mile away from the seminary in Philadelphia, um, and so he goes to Philadelphia or to the seminary very often too. And so um, just to put that out of your mind, now that's a question that comes up a lot of times. Oh, this doesn't sound very Catholic. Is this really Catholic? Well, he's done, he's written it in a book in the way that it's really open to every Christian in the world without kind of because if you said it was Catholic nobody else would read it. <laughs> okay. So he realizes that. So so just to put your mind at ease about that. Okay, in page 61 he says, "Some people who consider themselves Christians have never clearly understood and personally accepted the reality of who Jesus is as savior. Going to church can seem empty if we lack a personal knowledge of sin and a relationship with the one who saves us." I know many people who grew up in the church and accept the teachings of the faith. But a personal relationship with the Lord requires a time of conversion, facing not just the fact that we all sin, but that I sin. And my sinfulness requires a personal need for a Savior. When you consider his death and resurrection, do you take it personally that he died for you? He died and rose for your liberation, or is it simply a sign of his love for all humanity? Does your hope of eternal life rest completely on what he has done for you? You know, we as Catholics would like to think, or some all Christians, but like I think, oh yeah, he died for all of us. But that's all us out there, you know. As opposed to saying he died for me, for me, and that if I was the only person in the world, he would still have come and died for me. You know, they loves me that much. And that's hard for us to kind of grasp onto, to say that. You know, I put back there, and we'll try, maybe try and say it tonight, is the, the rosary with um, St. John Paul II in his document, the rosary, had um, uh, given what he says was a common practice in, in Eastern Europe. And I asked the, the Notre Dame nuns in Omaha, and there's still a couple of older ones there who still came from Czechoslovakia, um, and they said, yeah, we used to do that all the time around our kitchen table. That's how we'd pray the rosary. Well, it has a little phrase after the name of Jesus. For example, yesterday we could have prayed, um, you know, Jesus, who carried the cross for me. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. And you say that each Hail Mary, who carried the cross for me. Holy Mary, Mother of God. You know, and it's a beautiful way of trying to personalize the reality of what the mysteries of Christ's life are. And so that's why I put that back there. Maybe we can try that tonight, perhaps. Um, But but it is a very powerful way that, in reality, that we often just kind of think of it out there. You know, that Jesus saved everybody. But we, we don't really find it me. If you have tried to follow Christ and question whether you know him as your Savior, I suggest you start with this prayer. Jesus, show me what is wrong with me. It won't take long before you know your need for a Savior. As Betsy suggested to Mike, uh, read the Bible as God's word to you and go to church. There's a story earlier on in, in Neil's book you know, about the guy who was wondering, and she says, here, read the Bible as God's word to you and go to church. Just start doing that. You know." And that's a great, great prescription. Um, if you don't know him in a personal way, seek out someone who does. Accepting the saving work of Christ is foundational to receiving the power to break the influence of evil spirits. Okay, get that again. Accepting the saving work of Christ, his death for you on the cross, his suffering, all that he did, okay, is foundational to receiving the power to break the influence of evil spirits because it's from him. And if we don't believe he cares about us, to call on his name is just kind of like, well, he's that guy that saved, died for everybody else. But when he says you realize he called on his name, he's the one who died for me, You can say name of Jesus. I renounce name of Jesus. I forgive name of Jesus. I command. You know, so it's extremely important that we begin to take that into our hearts, as he said here. You know, that's where the little little handout I had. um, You know, the Jesus kind of little little prayer that was put together by uh, the team that uh, that we that that worked on in Bound. Um, as we as we continue our Christian walk, we need to remain aware of that need for and reliance on Christ as Savior. Through ongoing conversion and dependence on the Savior, we can be kept out of the trap of religiosity, of being religious but not really being religious. You get, you get what we, can, we go through the motions, but the heart isn't there. You know that's what we can often get caught in. We do not have to end up like those, quote, having a form of godliness. This is from 2 Timothy, having a form of godliness but denying its power. You know, uh, to think that God doesn't have the power to do this. He can't help me. Well, that's kind of going through the motions but not believing that there's anything there. And that's what St. Paul was telling St. Timothy. A good definition of conversion is accepting by a personal decision the saving sovereignty of Christ and becoming his disciple. Now, I'll quote that a little bit later, I'll tell you who it comes from. Conversion or discipleship is a daily acceptance of the Savior and ongoing life as his disciple. Colossians chapter 2 tells us, just as you received Christ, Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him. So there's that ongoing ongoing incredible moment for us of really claiming him, of encountering him, and that's part of what happens here. Um, You may be shocked because you go, wow, that's gone, just like Betty talked about. You know, that's gone. And you realize this is what Jesus did for you. That's Him. He just did that. Even if it wasn't you, it was Him. And we have to keep that in our heads. It's not me doing it, it's Him. He's the one who's going to do this. There's three aspects of conversion. Kind of a conversion can be gotten said in three ways. I think Neil kind of puts it coming to know the saving love of Jesus, making a personal decision about the Savior. Then living as a disciple of Jesus Christ. So coming to know the saving love of Jesus, making a personal decision about the Savior, and living as a disciple of Jesus Christ. I like to describe it maybe a little simpler way. It only takes four steps, so it's not, it takes a little more. And it's like this. And it's kind of like coming from I, my direction, personally. I see what I have done. Okay, that's like the part of, of coming to know a saving love of Jesus. I see what I have done and I see what Jesus did for me. So I see what I've done. I see my sins and I see what he did for me. And then I see that I need him to save me. And then I make a decision. I decide to follow him in a life like his. So that's the way I kind of summarize that conversion. I see what I've done. I see what he did for me. And I see I need him. And make a decision to follow him. To be like him. That's a disciple. Both kind of speak of a decision that we need to make. Some call this a personal decision. Which it is. However, many Catholics react to this language as because they say it's Protestant, and we don't want anything Protestant. So if they say it, then we're not going to, we're just going to put it over, put, la, 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 don't, I can't say that, can't say that. i not going to hear that, okay? I know, I'm just jokingly saying that, but you know, in reality, our brains kind of do that. You know, it puts up a wall, <laughs> Protestant words, <laughs> we're not going to do, we can't do that, can't go there, you know? Um, and I'm just, I'm just being jokingly honest, because um, we see it as tainted, so to say, and we don't accept its validity that way. But you remember that little quote I read from, saint, from, from, from Neil's, Neil's book? Well, he had a footnote. I looked up the footnote, and guess who the footnote was from? It was from St. John Paul II. So this is language that St. John Paul II as pope used. He said, accepting conversion is, okay, this is a Catholic pope. He's a saint, okay, so it's not Protestant, okay? It's okay? Um, accepting by a personal decision the saving sovereignty of Christ and becoming his disciple. This is conversion by St. John Paul II. Accepting by a personal decision, personal decision, the saving sovereignty of Christ and becoming his disciple. You know, and that's, we live a life of conversion. Conversion. Conversion isn't, isn't a thing that just happens once in our life. It's an ongoing thing. It keeps happening because we all have to keep growing that conversion. And so what does that then just say? It means we have to keep growing in a deeper personal decision of his saving sovereignty and choosing to become his disciple every day, ongoing. You know, it's not a one-time thing, but it's an ongoing Conversion. Um, it reminds me of an experience I had at a wedding a number of years ago. It was the photographer who was not Catholic, and at the reception, the mother of the bride asked me to kind of talk to her about the mass because she said she didn't really know what's going on. And we had a very nice conversation. She was a single mother from Omaha who escaped an abusive husband. Uh, a friend told her that there had always been a pla- there's always a place next to her in her church. And I go, what a beautiful way of inviting somebody. You know what? She's struggling in her life. Say, so, hey, you know what? There's always a place next to me. I sit about this pew in the church. There's always a place next to me. You know, what a simple way of inviting someone. And so she started going to church with this, woman, with this friend. And she began to grow in faith. And she began teaching her three-year-old daughter what was of Jesus and what was of Satan. Three years old. Well, that's of Jesus. That's of Satan. So she taught her very clearly. Light and darkness. Darkness and light. You know, that's what's called the ancient writing of the apostles. They had the two ways. The ways of light, the way of darkness. You know, goes called the Didache. And now, as she said, so a friend of hers was telling her that she was having a hard time and the little about some problem in her life. And the little girl spoke up, I think age four now. And she says, you let Satan in your heart. What do you say to a four-year-old who says that to you, okay? <laughs> He's like, okay, there's, there's the word of God speaking right there, you know, in a pretty simple way. But you let Satan in your heart, this little girl told her. Because she'd heard what her mother said about what's of Jesus and what's of Satan. And she could tell. You let Satan in your heart. And the woman very honestly looked back at her and said, yes, I, I'm struggling with that. You know, so she had to admit it to a four-year-old. Um, the mother of the little girl said, told me, says she taught her, we have to be both believers and followers, is what she taught her daughter. We have to be both believers and followers. You know and that's the other way of saying that is we've got it all up here, we know who we are, but it never got down here. you know, and sometimes it takes that encounter with Jesus Christ in that personal decision before it gets from here to here. It's the longest foot in the world. It's like a marathon, one foot in 23, 26 miles, twenty four miles you know and and that's really where where she was at, and a beautiful little teaching that I wrote down here because I said that's great. You're right. We have to be believers and followers. We can't just be believers. That doesn't get us there. I say, yeah, I believe, Satan believes that Jesus, who Jesus is too. Yeah, he has no pride. He believed he was God, but he didn't follow him. You know, so do we follow him? That's the question. That's conversion. Am I going to follow him or not? Am I going to follow him with all my life? You know, a couple years ago, we had a priest retreat, Father Donald Haggerty. And he wrote a book, and, and it was kind of his, his priest retreat collections of his, of, his, of his talks. And his talks were, were um, basically, he had been spent 20 years giving retreats to missionaries charity sisters and teaching at seminaries. But our retreat two years ago was the first time he ever gave a retreat to priests. And so it was like, okay, he's got, he's got this distilled pretty well. He talked about the second conversion. Now, that's pretty heavy. And it's pretty amazing, but he talks about this idea that, that we also have an initial conversion, but at some point in life, God will call us to a second conversion where we kind of realize that all this stuff has been kind of on the surface. Now he wants all of our life. You know, and there's a turning point for all of us. Am I going to give him everything? And even the sufferings that might come? And even the fears? And surrender everything to him? You know, that's what, he's, that's what the second conversion is is really to give him everything. You know, and, and so it's a, it's a profound little book. I'd encourage it. It's called Conversion by Father Donald Haggerty. Um, but it but it is a, be a beautiful way of understanding that. The Catechism Catholic Church says this way. It says in, number one, in paragraph number 150, faith, faith is, first of all, a personal adherence. Hmm. Sounds like that other word again, doesn't it? Personal adherence, like a personal choice. Personal adherence of man to God. Faith is a faith is a personal adherence of man to God. You know, and and I and when I hear those words, I always think of uh, maybe being in a uh, maybe myself doing it probably too. When I was uh, being a little a little child, and, and you're in the grocery store, maybe and, and maybe you're, you're, you got lost or or you're afraid of something. And, and what does a little child do when they're afraid of something? Maybe they're glad to see mommy and daddy. They latch on her leg. You know, that, that's the image that comes to mind when I think of personal adherence to God. Can you imagine that? He says, being with, being with God and, and, and being a child that latches on. He says, I am not going to leave you for nothing, you know. But that's, that's, what, that's what it is. That's faith. He says, I'm connected, I'm connected to you. I'm not going to leave you for nothing. I'm holding on to you with all my harm, with all my strength. You know, that's a personal adherence. At the same time and inseparably, Catechism says, it is a free ascent to the whole truth that God has revealed, you know, so it's also intellectual. It says, I'm going to believe everything, but I'm going to make a choice to hold on. I'll make a choice. I'm going to choose to hold on to you, a person, Jesus Christ, God, a person. As personal adherence to God and assent to his truth, Christian faith differs from our faith in any human person. It is right and just to entrust oneself wholly to God and to believe absolutely what he says. It would be futile and false to place such faith in a creature. So God's the one we can completely trust and hold on to. We see how conversion and faith are intimately connected almost as one step, one movement, from something to someone, Jesus. And that was what I said, repentance and to faith. Returning, repenting from something or someone to someone, Jesus. Repentance is, again, Neil says, a personal decision to receive the love of Christ. What a great way of saying it. Repentance. Okay, we're talking about conversion, Now, now Neil talks about repentance as a personal decision to receive the love of Christ. Something in your life you can't get rid of. You know, uh, what repentance is, is, is receiving God's love into that place of whatever that thing, that action, that person is taking up. Receiving the love of Christ into that place. So that we don't have to cling to that. We can cling to him. We can cling to him. Personal decision to receive the love of Christ is repentance. To receive God's love into that place in our life where we, we're full of shame or doubt or fear and receiving his love there so that we don't have to act out in those ways that that shame, fear, hatred, anger, whatever it may be, bring us to act. Yes, sin is disobedience, but sin is really rejecting the lordship in our lives. Rejecting Christ's lordship in our lives, you know, that he's in the control. You know, sin is always about choosing what I want. And it's usually choosing about what I want in situations where I can't get what I want. So I'm going to make it, I'm going to do it somehow, some other way. I don't want to do this. I don't want to get up, so I'm going to hit snooze you know, over and over again, you know. And so I'm making a choice, you know. So it's rejecting God's lordship of our lives, that he's the lord of our life. Repenting of sin is repenting of our rejection of Jesus' lordship in our lives, So rejecting of accepting his love, rejecting of submission to him, of following him, of discipleship in him. You know, that's what sin is. The Lord, the master of all of our life, we we belong to him. You know, we belong to him. He made us. In his we are, the psalm says. Sorrow and regret are not repentance. Okay, we often think about that too. Okay, we come to confession, we have sorrow for our sins. Okay, but sorrow and repentance are different. That's kind of a, a, a light kind of a thing when I'm reading this, going, you're right, that makes a lot of sense. We can go to confession and have sorrow, but you know what? We can go to confession again and have sorrow, and again, and again, and again, for years upon years upon years, and that sin is always there. Why? Because we've never repented of it yet. You know, when confession is like an atomic bomb of sacraments, you know, Saint, uh, or not Saint, but uh, Father Gabriel Amorth and also, I think it's Monsignor John Essa, both the exorcist of Rome and, and who passed away and then an one exorcist in the country. He says, you know, again, they both said that sac- the sacrament of confession is worth, is, is, is worth like hundreds of exorcisms. That's how powerful the sacrament is. Hundreds of exorcisms. You know what? I mean, that's going to confession with repentance. It changes our life. It breaks all of his powers. It breaks everything he has in it, all the, all the strings, so to say, that keep us attached to something beside him. It repentance of sin leads to life, not condemnation. Okay, the Second Corinthians, godly sorrow leads to repentance. Now, this is Second Corinthians, Saint Paul writing in Second Corinthians, which is very powerful. He says, "Not because you were saddened, but because your sadness led to repentance. You were filled with the sorrow that came from God. Thus, you did not suffer any loss from us. Indeed, sorrow for God's sake produces." A repentance without regrets leading to salvation, whereas worldly sorrow brings death. Just look at the fruit of this sorrow, which stems from God. What a measure of holy zeal it has brought you. So 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 9 to 11, a great part there. He's talking about godly sorrow and turning to repentance, turning because of it's, its really in, in for, sake, for the sake of God. Confession is necessary expression of repentance. You know, sorrow and regret, um, they're good, but they do not equal repentance. Uh, repentance and confession together, um, that's what they're meant to be. You remember conversion? A change of mind that leads to a change of action or behavior? A change of mind that leads to a change in action. Now, we've all been in confession, as I said. Confessed our sins and came back and confessed the same sins again next time. Confession without repentance, this, obviously that conversion hasn't happened. There's no change of mind and it hasn't changed our behavior because there's no change of mind yet. And so we can think about that. Am I going to change my mind about this part of my life or not? If I don't, then I'll keep doing the same thing. That's just kind of the rule. Okay, we don't change your mind, we're not going to change our behavior. So confession begins with the conviction of the Holy Spirit as we begin to think differently about our sins. You know, looking at them, stepping away from them and saying, you know what, this really isn't good for me. Or I really don't need to do this. This really isn't helping me in my life by acting this way or doing these things. So it's, it's beginning to look, the Holy Spirit enables us to see our sins differently. Humility with confession of sin yields transformation. Remember the prodigal son? You know? He came to his father, and he was in, when he was eating with the pigs, basically, it says that he came to his senses, which means he finally struck him. He finally saw his life for what it was. He says, I don't want this anymore. I'm done with this. That's the idea of renouncing. And he goes back to his father. And as his father runs out to greet him, what does he do? He falls on his knees and had practiced this before, as Scripture tells us. Father, I'm not even worthy to be your son anymore. You know, I have sinned against God and against you. He repented; his heart was changed, his actions changed, his mind was changed. Now, the the sad reality is that just as there was with Adam and Eve, deception is part of every sin. Every sin, um, sin entered the world through deception. Adam and Eve were deceived and thinking that, "Oh, you can do this; this is okay." You know, and they believed. They believed the lies of Satan, who deceived them. He lied to them. You go through that whole that whole account and see his lies constantly to them. Jesus confirmed the role of deception on the cross because what did he say? He says, "Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do." Right, deception. They don't know what they do. They've been deceived. They don't realize what they're doing. And Jesus said that. And ask forgiveness, even our foolishness, even our ignorance, even our deception. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Deception keeps us from fully understanding how our sin offends God. It's indifference. Eh, it doesn't really matter. God's pretty big. He's pretty tough. It doesn't really hurt him. You know, um, I, I mentioned yesterday the uh, the, um, the video I just I just watched on YouTube. Um, with about Roy Schumann, who is the Jew who, who converted to Catholicism anyway and has an encounter with God. And, you know, he said something that really, really struck me. He said, he said how he, when he encountered God, he realized that he'd been loved at every moment of his life and that everything he cared about, God cared about. And how he felt at every moment of his life, God cared. You know, what a profound understanding of God. What a profound encounter. That God cares about how you feel about everything in your life. He cares about that. You know, He cares about those things. You know, and to be indifferent says he doesn't care. That's the opposite. So when we think that God doesn't care, he doesn't know, that's our indifference. Thinking that God doesn't know, God doesn't care, and so I don't care. The father of lies has his hand in every sin through direct or indirect deception imagine the young mother who comes to confession and confesses you know i got mad at the kids and i'm upset with my husband and you know and, and some things like this and you know it's kind of like these sins are kind of like weeds you know in the summertime they keep growing up you keep cutting them off and they keep growing up and you keep cutting them off you know and they never go away um but underneath, we see that what lies of the deception that may be there, for example, in this, in this young woman's, young mother's situation. Maybe what's underneath this, this, this confession of, I got mad at my kids and I'm upset with my husband, is these lies that she's believing in her heart. There's no one to help me. I'm a bad mother. I'm all alone. And this is bondage to the lies. And so those lies underneath are always there. And until those leaves, sometimes those actions can't change because they're the roots. The actions are just the, 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 the produce of the roots grown out that we cut off in confession. But it's going down the lies and digging those out is when the plant can finally be done with. The weed, so to say. The weed of sin. This is bondage to lies. Lies need to be recognized and renounced. You know, I put him back at church on uh, a list of lies. So I invite you to pick those up you know and look at those because those are one of the one of the things that is really first my first encounter with really freedom was by seeing that list of lies as i looked at it on my on my on my phone when i was watching one of the one of the, one of the videos i'd bought from the conference and realized oh my goodness that's the one that's the big one right now lies need to be recognized and renounced and so it's a learning from humility you know in a certain sense we kind of we kind of have to be humbled to acknowledge um, our, 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 our our ways sometimes you know Neil and Janet talk about the many ways that they messed up and that they God, were kind of moving in this area and he was going okay let's do deliverance and then all of a sudden they got freaked out and something happens and then they go let's just, God just send us for people healing you know and some of those were healed and some of those delivered and and so but there's this whole way of, of working that that was they were learning they were struggling they were also failing in different Ways, you know. There's a person that they couldn't help. You know, they didn't. They were struggled. Why couldn't they, couldn't they help him? You know, and there's a, a lot that they learned over those many years that is bore fruit in this in this book called Unbound. You know, um, one thing Neil says is you know, it's an important lesson they they learned is we do not do not fear the devil. He says, do not fear the devil. Luke chapter 10 verse 19 says this: Behold, I have given you authority to tread upon serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Again, behold, Luke chapter 10, verse 19, I have given you authority to tread upon serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, Okay, and nothing shall hurt you. I saw a uh, a little sign up uh, by St. Teresa of Avila saying that I do not fear the devil, I fear those who fear him. I do not fear the devil, I fear those who fear him. Because when we're afraid of him, then we can do anything. And it gets to be a little crazy. And so it was a great, great line. We can give the devil too much credit, you know. I like the great example I think Neil gives somewhere, it's like... um. That uh, the devil is like a, a chained dog. St. Augustine gives this example a chained dog. You know, it can bark and grom, bark and bark and bark, but if you don't step into its circle, it can't hurt you. You know, it can do anything once. It can bark, 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 bark all the time. But if it doesn't step, if you never step inside its chain, it can't touch you. You know, and there's the great truth of it. He says, better more. He says, fear your pride. Better to be afraid of your pride than the devil. You know, and that's where the pride comes in. I'm going to protect me, so I'm going to be afraid of the devil because I don't want to get hurt. There's the pride coming out in fear, you know, that I can't do this, um, that I can't change because I don't want to change because then I won't be able to have this. You know, there's pride that woes underneath all of it. You know, it's one of the great sins uh, that um, the scripture says that pride is the root of every sin. And I'll be very honest in hearing confessions of the priest. It's probably the sin I never hear. Unless I ask, what about this? Or I go through the capital of sins. And, oh, oh, yeah, I, I guess so. You know, um, it's interesting. What's, the Bible says, the word of God says the root of every sin is pride. And yet, well, you can tell when someone's growing their spiritual life, they begin to confess pride. Because once you start to see that, you start to see everything in context. That all this is about choosing what I want. You know? And so um, it, that's where it says to be, to be, afraid, of, to be afraid of your pride. Fear opens the door to the enemy, and faith opens the door to God and all his power. Fear opens the door to the enemy. That's why many of the things you can renounce is fear of this, fear of rejection, fear of um, fear of being hurt, fear of betrayal. So fear is what opens the door to him so many times, is fear. Not trusting that God is in control, God's able to take care of the situation, and I'm just going to do what he wants. So uh, it's, your, it's our choice. You no know, Fear opens the door to the enemy, and faith opens the door to God and all of his power. All of his power. You know? Let's turn the switch on. Faith turns the switch on. It opens the door. Pride, and kind of how it works. Um, oh, nuts, I forgot to get that book. i got to get this quote because it's really, really good. I spoke to someone once who said that I can't write in a book. And I go, once I got to college, I paid for the book, so I says, I think I can write it now. In high school, he had to always erase everything. Um, but um, I, I, some, there are some books that become more underlined than, than than than. And this is one of them. It really is. Um, but this is um, uh, it, it's this idea of pride is is you know what, is the big part of our part of our struggles. And so he has a beautiful beautiful uh, quote here, um, and he says it, he says this. This is page twenty nine of the uh, Unbound Ministry Guidebook by Neil Lozano. He says, humility is simply the truth about who God is and who you are. Humility is being secure in God's love and his favor towards you. G.K. Chesterton, probably one of the greatest English writers about the faith, said, quote, It is always the secure who are humble. It's always the secure who are humble. And interesting. When we're secure in God's love. We're insecure in who we are. That person is at ease, and people are drawn to them. Their humility is, is welcoming. Humility and security go together just as the opposite. Pride and insecurity, fear, go together, are interwoven, he says. Pride will lead you to believe you need to save yourself, to justify yourself, and that life is fullest when you are the center. Humility recognizes you are always safe in the hands of God and that life is most delightful when you can serve from the heart, trusting Him. The pathway of pride is a pathway to loneliness and isolation. The pathway of humility is a pathway to companionship and honor. We all battle with pride and insecurity. Any efforts to serve humbly will expose the enemy and reveal the battle within. Let me share some typical symptoms. You decide to serve, to take the last place, but find yourself compulsively wondering whether anyone notices how you're serving. When you are thanked for your service, you, feel, you feed off the words as if, as if you were starving, You collect a few crumbs but are not satisfied. You compare yourself to others, evaluating your standing before God and others. Insecurity drives you to say, do I deserve God's love? Or I know that I'm better than she or he, or I'm not as good as he or she. Have you ever admired parents whose children seem free to be themselves yet so obedient and respectful at the same time? I know families like this. Getting a glimpse of these blessings can give you a sense of awe. If you were to express to them your admiration, they might say, Thank you, and smile, saying thanks is an expression of humility. Inwardly, they might think, If you only knew what goes on every hour at our house. (laughs) And then whisper, Thanks to God, for they know he is the one behind every good thing. They know every blessing comes from God. This knowledge of the bigger reality, this acknowledgement of the truth, is true humility. You do not gain humility by denying your part or minimizing your abilities. No, you find humility by maximizing your awareness of the grace and action of God, who makes all things possible for those who believe. God opposes the proud and gives peace, grace to the humble. We have nothing to fear if we walk in humility. Neil Gaines, you know, he he, uh, he grew in his own experience of inner healing in his own life, also. You know, and that's kind of part of how we begin to share and enter into this mystery is first receiving ourselves. We can't give what we don't have. We we can't receive, and that's a real kind of a basic law. You know, we can't give what we don't have, or we don't what we won't receive. Um, so you know, sometimes there's a there's a great um, uh, story early in the book of uh, Unbound. He says, you know, where the guy just says, you know, Jesus, come and get me. You know, Jesus, come and get me. You know, at that point we have to where we're ever at. Jesus, come and get me. You know what? Um, I'm 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 lost, or I can't make it by myself. You know, there's humility. Um, deliverance unlocks a door, a deeper experience of God's love and mercy, and that kind of enables us to go forward. Um, you know, uh, one of the things that, that um, uh, Neil talked about was this incredible back pain he always had, um, and, and he, when he was being prayed with one time, finally after going through this for so long time, um, he he remembered um, this very early humiliation when he was in, in, in like first grade, just utterly humiliated in class, and this fear of rejection that entered him. You know, and and when he renounced that, you know, so much of his pain went away. You know, the reality is, 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 is many times, uh, my, uh, Janet, his wife, had a similar story. You know, and I, I would share with people something. You know, what God made us as two parts, right? Body and soul. And they're perfectly united, okay? Body and soul, perfectly united. Now, our soul is perfectly united. It's not mixed up. It's not some unique thing. It's perfectly united to our body. So that when our body gets hurt, I kind of put my fingers together and push one side, the soul feels it, too. But the opposite is true too. When the soul gets hurt, the body can feel it. And the soul's much more sensitive than the body. I'd say thousands of times more sensitive. And the wounds cause pain that manifests themselves physically. You know, in back pain. Migraines, we hear Janet. You know, there was a study done about, read about 10 years ago or more. I read the study, read about it, where there was a, a hospital had done a study on people with with, uh, with a heart disease. And they found this super high situa- uh, occurrence of unforgiveness, you know, and so the reality you can 't separate them just because our body feels something, think our soul's not going to feel it, or we 're hurting our soul, think our body's not going to feel it i mean that that's not logical if they 're perfectly united they can't they 're going to touch each other, and so that reality is there, and so deliverance unlocks a door you know um, you know sometimes I remember um, A great great line that that Neil made was in, he said, after looking at this, he says, well, how many acts of selfishness to protect from rejection? You know, he was rejected in that first grade situation. You know, I felt that same way when I was in eighth grade. <clears throat> there was a, a big school picnic. I've been looking for this picnic for, 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 for the whole eighth grade years. Kind of like in eighth grade, you're like the, like the like the seniors, you know. And we were gonna we were gonna trounce everybody on, on, on the on the field and the games and everything it was. And and something happened that was just really like my best friend for all of grade school just rejected me completely in front of everybody in the whole in the whole school. And basically, we never talked for the rest of high school. I mean, we would interact, but just like just completely separate part of ways. You know? I had no idea what happened, no idea why, but just completely broke. You know, and that rejection was profound at that moment. And, you know, and so it, the memories are, are painful. You know, these things have happened in our life, you know, in different parts of our life. Um, and so those things bring in this fear of rejection, you know, fear of rejection, of being rejected. And that can rest with us and can color our, our relationships and color how we interact with people. And it still does sometimes, but once you get free from that, there's less. Wait a second, that's not me. That's not me, and I'm I'm a I'm a whole person myself. You know, not dependent on what somebody else thinks. You know, that fear um, is such a powerful thing that it can it can it can flavor our life. Fear rejection or the shame that enters in. Fear came along. I remember one time, a great fear. You know, my, my mother had a degenerative nerve disease. And so when I found and learned about that when I was very young, you know, there's this, there's this fear of, well, when's mom going to die? Or what's going to happen? Am I going to get the disease too? Am I going to die? You know? I remember one time being young, and, and my older brother wasn't home, but it's like, like the first time I was left alone at home, you know, and just this incredible fear that they'd both been killed in a car crash or something happened, you know. And I, I never forgot that. It was just like just almost, almost paralyzing fear. I know, And this fear can, can, can take hold of you, you know, and it can be part of you because of those things. Um, there's even situations where I know people who pray with uh, other people, and, and sometimes they'll talk about even praying with somebody from the moment of their conception. For this one person had, had been this one mother who was with a child, and she lived on a farm or something, and, and this bull came raging in an alley, was right against her, and she was almost pinned against it and just barely got out, and this fear entered the child. And they were praying through this and realizing that, that that's where that fear came from, was the time the mother was so afraid, you know? And so, uh, this hard life is real, and every moment of our life is precious. But every moment of our life can be—we can receive gifts. We can also be also be wounded, you know. Even in the womb, you know. And so, there's this the incredible depth of all these things is is sometimes kind of mind boggling. But at the same time, it is very reassuring because God cares about all those moments. He cares about what happened to us when we were first conceived. He cares about what happened to us when we were were young, when we were little, when we were older. He cares about all those points of our life. Many pieces of life where memories linger, the Holy Spirit is leading you back to find healing and freedom. You ever have thoughts that kind of pop up? Memory from childhood? Why is that? Why does it keep popping up every now and then? You know, when you're reading the book, you probably had different memories come up. That's the Holy Spirit raising those things up, because he wants to bring healing to those places. The first time I experienced that was in seminary with my spiritual director. And there's this one memory I had all the time of, of me playing on the carpet when, when my brothers and sisters were in school because I was five years younger. And just for some reason, I actually prayed like I was organized. Like, well, this is not me. <laughs> this memory stuck out. How, how did I do that? I never prayed like that, you know. And, and as I was praying with my spiritual director, you know, in seminary, um, he said, well, you just, you just pray. And he says, I'll pray for you. And he says, you know, we'll see what happens. You know, all of a sudden, I I I saw in that just like this memory, and I can't go back to that memory without seeing this now because this is how God heals even memories. He says, all of a sudden, I saw the blessed mother sitting there. She was the one I was playing for. Though she was there, and so it was that healing of that moment, which actually was loneliness, because I was all alone, home alone. My mom was because was sick, and so I mean I was home, but she couldn't interact a whole lot, you know. And so there was loneliness, you know. And so there was a blessed mother. And so I can't go back to that memory without seeing her there. And that's what God does. God, the memories are real. They're physiologically real, neurologically real. And what can happen is God can actually change the memory. He can physiologically change it so that the cells in your brain that holds that memory um, can take on a new form. This is God. This is how great God is. This is how powerful it is. This is Jesus. He's our Savior. He can save us from everything. Okay? We just have to have enough courage to entrust our lives to him and to bring him into everything. Neil sees the lie and recognizes the deception. You know, he, uh, one thing that happened to him also was um, repenting of sin. Uh, he saw the lie of, of, the, of the rejection that he, that he had as a child, and that's what then changed his life too, and, and that's a very powerful way. Repenting of sin delivers us from evil. Renouncing the lie sets us free to live deeper with Christ. Now I share with this, and I alluded to it before. You know, so the, the lie sheet back there. When I had um, my encounter with the uh, with the uh, the the enemy's uh, accomplice, so to say, um, and I came back, and there was just a lot of turmoil in life. And I remember going through that that uh, uh, the DVD set anyway, and looking at he it, it talked about mm, this is for, for for lies. Look that up, and so I read through the list of lies. You know, and after receiving these different curses and things like this. You know, it was, uh, I go, oh my gosh, that's the lie. That's it. And the lie was, you'll see it on there, it says, the lie that Satan is more powerful than God. And so I says, that's it. That's the one that's stuck in my head. That's stuck in me. If you experience some rather unique things, you can start to question things. And so it was, it was that lie that I then looked at the five keys, and I went through the five keys. I forgave this person, um, and I renounced um, this lie, um, and I, I confessed my, my love for, for and the repentance and, and faith, and then and I forgave. And I renounced this lie, and I commanded to leave. And it was like, um, I would call it euphoria or, or, or ecstasy almost. And it was just, it was such a joy in my soul and my body for, for probably two or three hours. It was so powerful. And I said, This is real. That's when I was convicted. This is real. This is not just some stuff you say. God really does this stuff. You know, and, and that, was, that was my first encounter, really. Even though I was there, I went to the conference and prayed with it, you know, but, but it, it, we all have to find that moment where it is, it is the thing that we finally let go of or ask God to take care of or take away that it transforms our lives. It set me free to a deeper life, having experienced the power of deliverance through announcing this lie. Janet's history of migraines um, she had these migraines be almost de, just destabilizing for several days how bad they were many times doing a conference or something else and so she finally was being prayed with and this person had said well I'm praying with you again and so she prayed with him and she, says, she asked well when did this start great question never been asked that before she said when did this start and she goes well about 15 years ago what was going on well my mother my mother-in-law was dying of brain tumor and all of a sudden she realized it was fear and so she literally was broke down, um, and realized she'd been set. She once she realized it, what it was. It wasn't her body. It was fear that was totally decap- decap- decapacitating her. And it was this fear that was giving these migraines that would literally be torturous to her. You know, it was fear. You know, and so um, she, and then she was set free from that. You know, because of that. You know, and so we, that's why I talk about the body and the soul. You know, the connection there is, is very profound. And, and that way, we often don't realize that some of these things that have happened in our life um, are still affecting us. Still affecting us. You know, um, testimony, and she said one of the big parts that Janet, Janet said, this is Neil's wife said, that, that she immediately gave testimony um, with that. They had to open the conference with that. He says that's a big part of her healing. She says testimony means that we claim this freedom, um, this healing before the enemy and giving God the glory. You know, so that's a profound part of it, that we, pro- we claim it. And so it's a very important part to actually share this. And I would look to hopefully give you a chance to that also. Um, because when you share it, I experienced not sharing it and losing the graces. When I went on a, 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 a huge retreat, and I didn't get to a big retreat, and I just, I just I was a, didn't feel like going up, stand up, doing it, didn't get a chance to. It, often they said it was over, and I was going to raise my hand, you know, um, and realize that it lost it. You know, so sharing is a way of claiming sharing the the gifts the graces is a way of claiming that god did this for me to the world and that kind of cements it in in a very powerful way so it's good to tell people what god has done in your life that's called witnessing that's called testimony and it's how people are converted you know if you ever been to a retreat sometimes when people give you ever know you can blather on about theology that once you tell a personal story everybody wakes up you know that's testimony and that's how it works you know, um, I can blather on about theology forever, but what you tell us something personal, that catches our, that, that we, we connect to that. You know, the same is with your friends, you know, to share with, well, this is what God did for me. You don't have to preach to them. You say, witness, this is what God did for me. And they're going to go, wow, how can I get that? Now you've got them. God's got them because of what he did to you. And so it's a powerful, powerful thing to do. Guidelines for deliverance ministry, you know, avoid extremes. devil doesn't cause everything. Our response is crucial. It opens the door because we're in control. And we can take control of how we respond to different temptations and hurts, you know, with forgiveness. Forgiveness, you know, that's the, cu- that's the crucial one, really. And that's what Jesus said. Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. And we have to say that about others, you know. I once had a very holy person say that you know what we should share with people is to, when they're struggling with forgiving somebody is to hold a crucifix in their hand and to look at it and to speak those words of Jesus about this person that's hurt us. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. You know, so with Jesus, we speak his words. Ask God for revelation about your heart. You know, show me my heart. Lord, show me what my heart really looks like. You know, and that's some of the in the one of the questions in the in the uh, the companion guide, and maybe even on some of the uh, the reflection questions. Show me, Father, what you are doing in my life. Thank you, Lord. Show me what you're doing, Lord. You know, what a beautiful way of talking to God. You know, hey, show me what you're doing, God. What's what are you doing in my life? And let Him show you. Listen. You know, what a different kind of relationship. You know, where you talk to Him. And say, show me, what, show me what you're doing in my life. You know, what's going on? God has a plan for your life. And this is one of the profound points in the, the uh, Companion Guide book and also in Neil's book, is a, reflect, a question that I never even processed before. Never had any idea of it. Because he says, God has a plan for your life. And he says, Satan also has a plan for your life. What is it? What is it? You know, it's a tremendous question. It's one of the questions that I asked when I'm praying the uh, the, uh, um, the companion guide after going through it with the videos. Um, and it was that question that all of a sudden gives you a whole perspective. It's like, wait, he does have a plan for my life. And I start seeing it going back from when I was five years old and all of the different things that happened over and over again. I says, yes, he does have a plan. Um, and it was really a plan of destruction. And I'll maybe share that later. Um, but yeah, that's that's what I saw. His plan was; it was very clear. The word came instantly. I wasn't thinking about it. It's like, bam, it was there. Holy Spirit showed it to me right away. I mean, when you ask the Holy Spirit questions like that, He doesn't wait. He says, "Absolutely." I've been waiting for you to answer this question, ask this question for years, you know. And there's what God does. He wants to reveal that to us. So, um, I receive many blessings, insights, and healings, and simply praying through through these questions. That are in this little thing, the little daily ones, and it says each day has a, after the conference, for example. So you have daily reflections, so you can review your notes and you can pray to those um, each day. Take about five ten minutes, look at those questions, maybe those quotes from the book from the book, and just ask those simple questions because they're very very powerful. Um, and that's how God God kind of gently kind of kind of reveals Himself to us. It doesn't all happen right away sometimes. Every time I listen or, or watch, I learn something new. I look at his CDs or DVDs. You know, I'll, I'll listen to them maybe once or twice a year. At least once a year, anyway. I try to. And something always comes out, something new. Um, anyway, so we want to seek Jesus and his truth and his plan for our life. Respond honestly to those revelations the Holy Spirit gives you. you know, show, uh, So um, even say, show me, Father, what you're doing in my life. Thank you, Lord. Deliverance is a process. Layers are revealed one at a time. Not once and done, but it's a process going deeper in life. Thank him for what is done and trust him for what still needs to be done. You know, there's a big part. You know, God has been revealing stuff, but he didn't give you everything. I mean, it's like that guy who asked the, the God, you know, I don't want to be a Christian, but see, God respect him. But later he showed him because he was ready to accept it. Same with us. You know, God brings up in our life some of the big things and maybe not everything, but some of the big things that we need to deal with. And just trust the Holy Spirit's leading you and guiding you. As you've been reading the book, as you're here, that different memories, thoughts come up, deal with those. They may be completely completely unrelated to what you think the problem is. Okay? They may be completely unrelated. You may go, wow, what does that mean? But yet, the person praying with you may understand, yeah, this is connected. And they may help you see that. Deliverance moves us from bondage to weakness. You know, we may say, wow, weakness, that's not a really good thing, is it? Uh, and so... But dependence on but place it's a dependence, dependence on God. When we're weak, we have to depend on Him. Deliverance moves us from bondage to a place of weakness and dependence on God. There's two very powerful verses that often uh, need to keep close to us and spend quality time pondering our hearts. And Paul had a profound spiritual gifts and visions and had afflicted and begged God for help. Um, and Jesus responded to him. Second Corinthians chapter twelve, verse nine and ten. He said this. But he said to me. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. My power is made perfect in weakness. So don't be afraid of weakness. That's where God acts. And he's the one that went acting, um, not so much ourselves. For when am I am powerless, it is then that I am strong, verse 10. You know, um, so I invite you then... Um, as you be begin preparing for getting prayed with, we'll do the renunciation homily at, 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 at Mass because that's really going to allow you to experience, if you've never experienced before, what that is and what that means because that's a crucial part of, of being prayed with is that renouncing, um, and that's the part that's very unique, what Neil has brought in. And so um, you'll be warmly welcomed. Um, the prayer teams know the great things that God wants to begin to do in your life, and they will listen and lead you through the keys listening to your story. And helping you work through the keys. You're the one who will do that. They'll ask, would you like to do this? Would you like to forgive this person? Would you like to do this? So it's very, very respectful and very, very calm and very, very just helping you walk through the keys yourself because you're the one. And I'll say, I use these keys multiple times, sometimes daily, sometimes in the middle of difficult situations. And I recognize, oh, that's that happening. I won't want that. You know? And there's where it becomes a very powerful thing in your life. Um, help in basically wants to help you commit your life to recommit your life to the Lord. Prepare. Ask the Lord to reveal unrepented sins. Ask for revelation of areas of deception or where you have swallowed the lie or lies in your everyday life, as a child, young adult, and adult, in family life, work in life, and encounters and others. Now, I'm going to share with you something that I've never shared with anybody else before, because I just found it. The Holy Spirit kind of showed this to me in the book, and I go, "Wow! I never saw that." And what it is is on page 239. It's an appendix, and it's a deliverance questionnaire, and it's some questions you can read through about different things that you could probably bring up if those are part of your life. And, and it's a pretty like, wow, I had never seen that. Those are really, really good questions. They kind of they can come up in different ways, but it's like that's a pretty that's the big stuff. Okay, that's the big stuff, and the big stuff you want to get out because the big stuff is where stuff's happened, and so those are the places you want that healing grace to come. So let us pray. Lord, I ask you to send your grace upon me. Send your Holy Spirit to transform my heart and my life. Give me that gift of repentance that leads to life. Amen.